standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 271 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and my intro fact has been stolen by an admin error. Okay then, I'm Hannah Dunley. <laughs> no, no. What does that mean, Mickey? I was going to a pottery class yesterday afternoon and I thought that's a good fact to start with. And uh, we got to the pottery class and it would been double booked, so we had to come home. So my fact is, I did not make any pots yesterday. Oh, Mick. Were you really sort of raring up for a sort of ghost type scenario? Or was there a no ghosting sign <laughs> as you went in? There were no no ghosting signs. So maybe when we rebook, Hannah, I'll keep you posted. My friend Alex, when we were at uni, he used to, when we were in the flats and you'd be doing the washing up, he'd come up behind you and put his hand go, oh, my love, <laughs> every single time. <laughs> he wouldn't get away with that now, would he, Jen? Well, gone mad. He wouldn't. He was a bit creepy at the time. He's still my friend. Hi, Alex, if you're listening. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I've seen the boss's new show as a work in progress. And if you go in, you're in for a treat. Well, that's exciting. Lovely stuff. Mm, yeah, it was very good. Didn't look like a work in progress, looked like an actual show. I mean, classic Sarah Millican, eh? Mm-hmm. She doesn't really do work in progress. She just does nailed it. What's it called, Hannah? It's called Late Bloomer. And uh, yeah, tickets from the usual places if they're not already sold out soon. I think it starts on the 20th of September, official. But it sounds like she's already flying. Yeah, get thee to the website. I went on my own and I just popped myself on the end of a row where there were two uh, middle-aged women who clearly thought I was by myself and in need of someone to talk to um, <laughs> which was a bit awkward because I was really hot and I didn't really want to talk to anyone at all and yet you have to be a bit polite don't you because oh, they were being nice bitter friends. yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly I almost had a fact about a cardigan this week so uh you know <laughs> <laughs> very rock and roll around here if you are still listening, thank you so much. Because yeah. <laughs> I bought a cardigan and it was really hot, right? And I just looked at it and I was like, no, fuck off. Absolutely not. <laughs> this is the worst idea ever. Can I just say, Sarah always says her audience is a very cardigan-y bunch. So, you know, I think you found your, I think you found your, your tribe, Jen. You know if how you're... I feel about cardigans. I'm a big fan. Anyway, in direct contrast to that statement, I'm Jen Offord and I'm 80% beach. Is this kicked in your face by your daughter oh, no. or slightly different she this week? She didn't do it, but you know what? It took two hair washes last week and I was still <laughs> picking <laughs> bits of sand out of my... And there's there's some there now, but that might be from this weekend. It's just like on Exfoliation, my neck, Jen. on my upper arms. Like I do wash. It's just, it's just everywhere. It's horrible. Nature's glitter. Nature's sore ass crack is what, <laughs> is what that is. Well, between your toes, that's the grimace. Yeah. Coming up, old lady time here gets a lesson in the pros and joys of TikTok. What? I know. As I chat with comedian and sketch-based lols sensation, Laura Ramoso. I'm chatting to playwright Miriam Batty about first dates, succession, and her latest offering, Strategic Love Play. In Jenny of the Blocks, I'll be bringing you all the latest in women's sport. And how many sleepless nights before we all look like Bill Murray's I can have another two for me, I think. In Rated or Dated, we watched 2003's Lost in Translation. But first, undercover policing, strikes, and look at us not being cunts for once. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. I've never been more intrigued because I know you two Uh, quite well. (laughs) Bush Telegraph. 
Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we've got some ideas about how to save the West, right, Hannah? Um, is it shut down Twitter? Okay, I'll put it this way. I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but Liz Truss is uh, publishing a book oh. next year, 10 Years to Save the West, which she says will set out what we must do to counter the disastrous ideas of the global left and halt the rise of totalitarian regimes. Wowzers. I would say... I'm not interested, Liz. I'm not interested in your ideas on how to save anything. I would say, my question about that book would be, how many people do you think are actually going to read it seriously and how many copies are just going to be sold by people who want to just photograph bits for Twitter and just go, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? I don't know. I mean, Matt Hancock's book didn't sell terribly well, did it? I I can only imagine Liz Truss's book is going to sell marginally worse than his. But hey, bite back publishing, you do you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know we've talked a lot about policing on this podcast in recent years and a lot about undercover policing. And here's your bi-weekly reminder that you should read Deep Deception or listen to the interview I did with Helen and Alison both of whom were tricked into a relationship with a man who turned out to be a police officer spying on left-wing causes. But last week, a story emerged that was so wild that even Alison, who'd written a piece for The Guardian about how the plot of the BBC drama Undercover was too protracted to be believable, tweeted that, even given her life experience, she thought this case meant that the piece that she had written was wrong. And here it is. The Guardian revealed that an undercover police officer used a fake identity to deceive a woman into a 19-year relationship in which they became partners and had a child together. What name went on that child's birth certificate, you might ask? The fake one. Oh, my God. In 2020, the woman discovered the truth about the businessman that she was engaged to. The Independent Office for Police Conduct is now investigating senior officers at Avon and Somerset Police who knew about the undercover officer's relationship with the woman as far back as 2013. The woman's identity is not being revealed, quite understandably, and she does not want to speak publicly about the experience, again, quite understandably. But her relatives have put out a statement which says she is, quote, a shadow of the person we used to know. Her family are also accusing Avon and Somerset Police of bullying and threatening them in an effort to discourage them from speaking to the press. Senior police, they say, warned that if the public were to become aware of the relationship, it could spark riots. So I'd add coercively controlling Mm. and emotionally manipulating them to their list of crimes. Are they crimes? I don't know. They fucking should be. Avon and Somerset Police also put out a statement which said, quote, While working in an undercover role, a former officer engaged in an inappropriate relationship with a member of the public using their pseudonym. The member of the public has no connection with policing and until recently they were entirely unaware of their links to the undercover police officer. They played no role in and were not connected to the officer's operational deployment. We fully recognise for those involved it has been deeply upsetting over a number of years and remains so today. We are sorry. We recognise and understand the devastating and appalling impact this has had on all those affected. And we have taken and continue to take our duty of care to them extremely seriously. I don't know that that marries up with finding out it in 2013 and her Mm. not finding out till 2020. 
but there you have it. There is a couple of things that I wanted to say about this. And the first is that I saw a lot of conversation last week about how this is part of systematic targeting of black communities by the police. Both the officer and the victim were black. And while I'm not going to deny that's true, I think by focusing entirely on race, we're at risk of separating this from what I can only describe as undercover policing's long and very disturbing history of the abuse of women. Secondly, while a lot of people seem very agitated about the number of cases in which individual officers have been found guilty of a myriad of crimes against women, they seem less agitated by cases like this and like Alison's and Helen's story. And while not knowing the full details of the case yet, I do have to be slightly careful about what I say. It looks a lot like state-sanctioned rape to me, and that should trouble us a whole lot more. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I think, I think, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Legally, say I meet someone today who tells me that they are a top league footballer in... Mm-hmm. Kazakhstan or something and I'm like wicked that appeals to me fantastic and then it turns out that this dude is not a top flight footballer in Kazakhstan I might have entered into a relationship the basis of my perception of who he is yeah. if he has willfully lied to me I believe under the law that isn't rape right was something called something along the lines of rape by deception yeah because I can remember there's quite a famous case of a woman Mm -hmm. i don't think she identified as a trans man i think she yes and she she pretended to be pretended to be a man and she was done Mm -hmm. for rape by deception i don't know if that's the exact term but it's something along those lines but i think the debate about gender and who is a man and who is a woman has actually complicated yeah now i don't think that case would be treated the same now yeah it does certainly seem that sex by false representation should be some form of mm. crime, particularly in this case. Well, I mean, I think this I is would say. this is like very different to me just meeting a, mm. a random dude. Yeah, you know, there there are people who argue that if I met someone who pretends to be a Kazakhstan top league footballer and I yeah. sleep with him on that basis, then that should be rape by misrepresentation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's quite complicated. I mean, I'm no legal expert, no. so maybe just leave it at that. But yeah. What I do know is that these things should be crimes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 100%. Because all that happens, and I know this from reading sort of Deep Deception, is you come up against a lot of, well, we can't tell you all the facts because it was Mm -hmm. an undercover operation and therefore we need to protect his identity or we need to protect the operation or whatever in those senses. But the officer will claim he was only following orders and the police will claim that he'd gone off the reservation. So that seems to be what, what happens and that is not a sufficient answer. Because it's clearly still happening. It's clearly way more common than, well, I mean, it shouldn't be common at all. But yeah, it's way more common than uh, than we thought it was. So, Hannah, can you remember what was happening in July? In the news? No. No, I can't either. I can't uh, even remember what was happening in my life in July, to be honest, Jen. No, no. I mean, I imagine something shit, not in your life, Hannah, as in in the news. Um, whatever it was. It certainly distracted me from legislation slyly being passed, uh, which just seemed to have been the way for most of our recent governments, I think, uh, the way most of them have operated. 
One of this shit shower's controversial bills that became actual law this summer was the Strikes Brackets Minimum Service Levels Act 2023. You know, the one that sets out minimum service levels in some sectors, such as in the rail industry and the emergency services during industrial action, a.k.a. requires some employees to work, a.k.a. minimises disruption from strikes, a.k.a makes the legal act of striking basically redundant. (laughs) Also worth noting that the Act gives powers to set out standards that will be defined in secondary legislation, so not subject to the same levels of scrutiny as primary legislation, which in itself is kind of frowned upon, but there we go. We've talked about strikes on the podcast before. I travel a lot between my mum's house in Essex and my own flat in London for childcare reasons. And that is not infrastructure that the government (laughs) cares about functioning properly, apparently. But whatever, that's a different story entirely. Are rail strikes annoying? Yes. Are they meant to be annoying? Ten points to Gryffindor. You guessed it. Yes, they are. That's the point. But guess what? Like so many other poorly thought through, reactionary, populist and draconian plans this government has floated previously, it transpires this one might just be a bit out of step with international standards too, according to the Trades Union Congress. In fact, the TUC said that the legislation which could see workers who refuse to cooperate lose their jobs may be illegal and that it would report the UK government to the United Nations watchdog on workers' rights. While proposals on how to implement the new powers are currently under public consultation, the TUC says it may challenge the law in the courts. So far, so familiar, right? I mean, there's an awful lot of judicial reviews going on (laughs) in the last couple of years. Jesus, yeah. When I was a civil servant, there was a bill that later became an act in my policy area and I was privy to like the conversations that go on between policy officials, ministers, and the people that actually write the literal letter of the law. Yeah. And I can't, for the life of me, remember what that part of government is called anymore. But basically, I would fucking love to be a fly on the wall of those conversations now, because those lawyers who are writing the law will be having the worst time with these guys yeah Yeah. who would live in england so jen here's something positive a few months ago i was talking about the elgin marbles in bt i can't remember if it was with you or with mick was it with you i think it was mickey but i do remember it yeah i have an update of sorts by which i mean of course they're not being given back but just to show we are not the literal and actual worst all the live long day. An English museum has returned some important artefacts to what I can only describe as their rightful owners. What? Really? Manchester Museum, God bless them, is returning 174 objects dating back 70 to 90 years to an indigenous community from Australia's Northern Territory. Do you want to know what they said in response? Yes, please. Well, they did say that, but yeah, they they said (laughs) some more. And I really hope that I don't undo the good work of Manchester Museum with my pronunciation of all of this. But anyway. Good luck, Hannah. Thomas Amagula, Deputy Chair of the Anindilyakwa Land Council, said, quote, we have only just begun to appreciate how valuable the repatriation of the Worsley Collection will be in the future. Hooray. Oh, that's nice. 
yeah, I mean, we should do more shit like that. Yeah, agreed. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we'll take a high-level, high-paid job with influence, please. Piss, please. Oh, do we have any relevant knowledge to bring to this? Hmm. Let's ask Times journalist Matthew Syed, shall we? Do we have to? Sadly, Hannah has (laughs) taken it upon himself anyway. (laughs) You've all heard me talk for the last few weeks about Luis Ribiales and the clusterfuck of governance that is the Royal Spanish Football Federation right now. You've heard me talk about the issues the squad faced before Rubiales took Jenny Hermoso by the chops and kissed her actual lips in front of the whole world a few weeks ago, an act she said she had not consented to. You've heard me talk about Georges Vilda, the Spanish women's team manager, and how 15 members of the squad went on strike prior to the World Cup. Such was the strength of feeling against the manager, who they said had had a negative impact on their mental and physical health. You've heard me talk about how it was outrageous that their quarrel with him was never taken seriously. And you've not just heard it from me, you've heard it from quite a few people because it was all very much happening in the public eye and discussed at length by journalists and pundits covering the women's game. So, following Vilda finally being given the elbow last week, for Matthew Syed to write a column about the, and I quote, shameful decision to get rid of him simply for clapping for his dickhead boss seems, well, it seems lots of things, doesn't it? But (laughs) let's start with not very well informed. By his own admission, Syed wrote in his initial piece, now heavily edited after drawing the ire of many working in the women's game, he had, and I quote, not followed the ins and outs of the controversy around Vilda. Can't expect him to know what's going on, Jen, just because he's writing about stuff. That's wokeness gone mad. It's funny, isn't it? Because I can imagine a woman writing such an ill-informed piece about men's football and absolutely no one caring, right? Uh, right? Yeah, well, absolutely, yeah. In the edited piece, he writes that Vilda had never, and I quote, been on the receiving end of any allegations of assaulting women. And if that's the benchmark for being a good employer, I think maybe we need to have a chat, Matthew, because that does seem quite low, doesn't it? Yeah. That he was said, this, these are also Sire's words, Said to be overbearing and controlling is, I would say, relevant, not least when 15 members of your squad are complaining about it. Jesus, 15. I mean, my God. It's literally the majority of a football squad. (laughs) But there we go. These complaints are not recent and they are well documented. So to say that Vilda is the victim of a woke wars witch hunt or whatever is not only inaccurate but extremely damaging. If you choose not to believe one woman, I don't know, maybe you have your reasons, right? If you choose to ignore the best part of an entire squad of women, I don't know what else we can tell you. Shrugs. Yeah, it's one of these things where somebody is on the, whatever you want to call it, culture war beat. And so they see stuff like this and they just see culture war in it and they, they just assume that it's, Women overreacting or lefties overreacting or snowflakes overreacting without thinking that there could be anything deeper, you know. Like I say, one woman, maybe two, like, you know, maybe maybe, maybe even three women you could say, oh, well, you know, the youngsters these days, they do get offended yeah. ever so easily. But 15. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Shrug some more. <laughs> 
Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by comedian and social media star, Laura Ramoso. Laura, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's very exciting. You have become, and I can't overstate this even, you have become massive on TikTok and Instagram with your sketches. Huge highlights being your impersonations of your German mum and Italian dad. And so I wondered, how do your parents feel about this? That's a great question. Um, I get that question a lot, which is fair enough. <laughs> I think at the beginning, when I first did the first the German mom video, there was a bit of um, resistance to it, I think, because the belief was that the audience was sort of making fun of her. We, we did have a chat about it and everything, but we realized that it's actually not that way at all. Everyone really is on her side and really loves her. And then aside from that, character has completely become, I mean, it's inspired, obviously, by my real German mom, but uh, it's become a character. I mean, she's very two-dimensional online or wh- wherever she's represented on stage or online. And so, I mean, obviously, my mother is a full three-dimensional person with, <laughs> like we all are. And, and so, yeah, that, that's fully understood now. And she's very happy. They're both very happy, very proud, and they really like the videos. They've made some uh, sneaky appearances in them as well, haven't they? Yes, they have. They love it. (laughs) I was intrigued as well because you do sketch comedy and sketch comedy tends to be like a team player game. You tend to have duos or troops. So I'd like to know how you got into sketch comedy as a genre, but also how you got into solo sketch comedy. So I got into sketch comedy as a genre after going to see the Second City perform in Chicago. The Second City sketch theatre, sort of quintessential North American sketch style. Um, And completely fell in love with it only because, well, the main thing is I I love that with sketch, you can kind of do anything. It can be anything. And I was intrigued by the possibilities of that. And I started taking workshops and classes, and that was with Team Sketch, which is so fun. And then as part of a show I did, I wrote a monologue for myself, a sketch monologue, and performed it as part of that sketch show and just really enjoyed being up there by myself. Uh-huh. That sort of spurred my love for solo sketch because then I made my first hour after doing that monologue. I, I don't know. I just really love the control of it. I love um, that I, I can do anything. I mean, I do miss the ensemble aspects of, you know, having friends with you on stage and, and playing around. But overall, what I love the most about it is uh, with solo sketch, the audience is your scene partner. Mm-hmm. And so the way I like to do it is I, I have sketches with a lot of improvised elements and I bring the audience in and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm never alone, really. So that's really it's my favorite thing. Did you used to be an estate agent before you were a comedian? Is that true? <laughs> Not an estate agent, but I worked for a real estate company. So I was my day job. I was a real estate marketer. I was their marketing manager. So I did marketing for the agents themselves as well as the company. Okay. Because I was wondering about that whole like mimicry obviously plays a lot of a a role in your sketches. And I wondered if when you meet people, are you already like, oh, that's an interesting thing that they do. And that's an interesting thing that they do. A hundred percent. Yes. People or situations or, or, or things that happen in everyday life. Yes. She's a magpie. (laughs) So, Laura, as well as talking about your comedy, and we're going to get on to your solo show, Francis, in a moment. But I have basically got you on here to tell me about TikTok because I'm quite scared of it. 
Uh, so I would like to know what drew you to the platform for very young people. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I'm scared of it too. You know, to be completely honest, I, I don't really spend time consuming TikTok content. I, I really only use it to post. So fair enough. I'm I'm on the I'm in the same boat. That what drew me to TikTok was I think more of a necessity. A lot of people have this story, but it makes sense. During COVID, when all the theaters were shut down mm-hmm. and live comedy was dead. I was drawn to making short form sketch content. So that wasn't YouTube at the time. It was TikTok and and then Instagram shortly after. So what drew me to it was really necessity is a learn of invention, that one. So definitely not a choice that I would have made before COVID because I was basically not even on social media at all. It was something that came out of necessity. Okay. But there's a really... Yeah cool engagement there from TikTok viewers, right? They're really into chatting and enjoy chatting with the content creators. They really do. Yes, yes. Uh, they're very interested um, in, in your personal life as well. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I find that I'm incredibly lucky. I know that a lot of people have a very toxic TikTok environment, but uh, at the very least, my followers, the people on my page have been 99% positive, which is great. Uh, it's nice, nice to see. And I guess because you're doing characters, there is a buffer there between actual Laura and persona Laura or personas Laura. Completely. Um, Yeah, with TikTok especially, it's very content driven. Instagram is a bit different. There's a bit of personal stuff on Instagram, um, but TikTok is very much, I I, I barely ever speak or ever, I think at, at all, never have spoken directly as Laura to the audience on TikTok. I think that's wise. I think you're a wise woman, Laura. Oh, thank you. But huge success came relatively quickly to your TikTok channel, to Instagram. How did that feel? It was wild. I don't know how you would define quick. I mean, I guess, yes, it was quick. It it did take me from the time I started to make my first videos, keeping in mind uh, there are some I never posted when I first started. And uh, I actually had an old TikTok account, which I then deleted because uh, it was... I just couldn't figure it out. And it took a long time for me to figure out what my style was and what sort of stuff I was going to make on the internet. But the current account on TikTok, I think it took about a year or so before I started to really not only get, you know, some more views and attention, but a year before I started to feel really confident about my own videos. I mean, you have so many followers now. I don't think anyone in the world can actually count that high. So, you know, it's like gazillions, (laughs) gazillions of people. And you mentioned earlier that you were quite drawn to that sort of short time slot. So what appeals to you about that? That was, I wondered if the pressure kind of honed your skills almost. Definitely. Yeah, it's... um... At first, when I first started TikTok, I think the the maximum video you could upload, the maximum length was one minute. Now they've increased it, but it was such a um, an education in sort of kill your babies. Did you have that expression? I hope <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah, yeah, otherwise, yeah, exactly. otherwise okay, it's weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, yeah, yeah. It was such a, an education in um, not being precious about comedy, about jokes, about your the things that you write, uh, because you had to be pretty ruthless with the editing. At first, I hated that, but then I grew to love it because it made the videos better. And even now, when the limit is, I think it's five minutes, I'm not sure. I still keep it under a minute because I find that that's the best stuff anyway. To answer your question, yeah, it really honed, especially the style that I, uh, 
that I like to make. So you've gone from sketches that are under a minute and you are now doing a tour show, which is an hour. You're fresh back from the Edinburgh Festival. Well, as fresh as anyone can be after the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, (laughs) Laura is shaking her head, listeners. Oh, God. Rotting, rotting in the ground. (laughs) You were performing your one woman show, Francis. So tell us a little bit about Francis, please. Yes, Francis is my second sketch hour. Uh, I wrote my first hour in 2019 and I toured it in the, in Canada a bit at first. It opened last summer. And then, yeah, when the opportunity came to come to Edinburgh, it was such a, uh, an immediate yes, it's always been kind of a bucket list item to go to the festival. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so Francis is a sketch show in that it's separate sketches, one after the other, but then tied together with a narrative arc sitting on top of it. And that narrative comes from the titular character whose name is Francis. So uh, it's essentially a sketch show with a bit of a story as well. And what kind of themes are we looking at with the story? We're looking at breakup, love, relationships. So the show opens with Francis receiving a phone call from her ex-boyfriend who's randomly broken up with her two months prior. And he's calling her up to meet to, to talk. And she has no clue what he could possibly want after judging her so recklessly with no explanation two months prior. So she's sort of humming and and hawing about what it could be. And uh, Francis then um, seeks advice from her best friend who ends up being whatever poor little soul who chose to sit in the front row. Um, (laughs) So she picks, she picks a a best friend and gets advice. And um, then she meets other characters who end up being, for example, German mom or Italian dad, um, they get woven through into the story. And then the the twist is that in the middle of the show, um, we have sort of a cataclysmic reset. And then we see that phone call and the breakup from the perspective of her ex. So it sort of restarts. And then he picks a best friend as well. And at the end, they meet. Your stuff is so funny, but it sounds like with the, the biggest show, you've put some emotional resonance in there as well. Oh, yes, definitely. I think... Um, any story worth telling has to have that. It can't just be, um, you know, a surface level jokes that sometimes the videos are, which is totally fine for that sort of entertainment uh, and consumption. But if you're, you know, asking people to sit in, in the theater with you for, for an hour, there's got to be something. Yeah. Not, you know, put on, but something true to you, or vulnerable to you. I sort of like that anyway, to, to take from real life experiences, emotions, situations, and, uh, and and turn it into comedy. I think the, the more true it is, the, the funnier it is in the end as well. Very much so. Something that isn't true to life, although obviously has a lot of life that we recognise within it, is what we do in the shadows, which I am a huge fan Hello. of. <laughs> and you've been in it. You're in it. Hello. Yes. Playing Hello. A, a very straight-faced Valkyrie in season four. How was that? <laughs> Oh my God. It was an incredible experience. When my agent called and told me I booked it, I was so happy because it's such an iconic show. I love it so much. Not only, you know, it's hilarious, but the style too, a mockumentary style narrative show is kind of every comedian's dream, I would say. I mean, at least mine. It was such a fun day as well. And uh, yeah, just to be able to play such a character on that show was the best. I had so much fun. I just discovered yeah. that season five exists. I knew they were filming, and we, we can't watch it in the UK. We can't get it here. It's so frustrating. Really? Yeah. What about 
I'm not sure if I'm allowed to even suggest it. We'll chat about this at the end of the interview because I am very interested. (laughs) Okay, good, good. So yeah, apparently it'll be on Disney Plus at some point in the future. I'm I'm going to guess that if they asked you to do the character again, you'd be back in a heartbeat. Oh, yes, a thousand percent. Ready with my Swedish accent and meatballs. Absolutely. (laughs) So Francis opens at the Soho Theatre London on September the 19th and runs until September 30th. Laura, where can people find you on the various socials to get involved? My at on Instagram and TikTok is L-A-U underscore Ramoso, R-A-M-O-S-O. That's my last name. Or you can look up Laura Ramoso and, and, and it'll pop up. So get involved. Absolutely. And after the Soho Theatre run, what is next? Are you going to do another big show? Are you going to do more acting? That's a great question. I think the next goal is to tour. I would love to tour the show as much as possible because it has a lot more life in it touring wise. Um, But I need to take some time to work on it a little bit more. I've learned a lot over the Edinburgh run, especially. And I just need to tweak it just a little bit based on what I've learned. So take some time, reset, get back into the rehearsal room, make videos and then go on tour. I'm intrigued. What did you learn during Edinburgh? Because it is, I don't think if you've never been there and either worked it or been on stage there, you can't really understand the intensity of that month. So yeah, what what did you pick up there? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much, I could, I could even talk for two hours about the Edinburgh friend, <laughs> but I think the biggest, um, it's obviously the hardest part of it. Doing tw- uh, 27 shows in 27 days was was brutal. But what it allows you to have is a constant testing of your show in front of a new audience every single night. And you can't learn what you learn when you do that unless you do that. The show's already been tweaked. Show one at the beginning of August was so different from show 27 at the end. And mainly what I've learned is the things that I thought I had to change for UK audiences were not necessarily the things that I had to change. Oh, interesting. I think it really services you to spend some time in, in in front of different audiences to understand those niche little um, those sensibilities that you you don't learn unless you 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 live in that environment. So it's mainly stuff like that. Knowing I'm bringing the show to London after Edinburgh, I'm so happy I did Edinburgh because I know what needs to change now. Because there's a lot of references I make to the environment that uh, that the show is playing in. Um, the city the show is playing in. And so um, I've just got to work on those things a little bit more. Mainly that, that's what I've learned. I think it's really interesting in Edinburgh as well, the audiences are very different to almost anywhere else that a comedian can play. And I think UK audiences are very different to North American audiences. A hundred percent, yes. I found that very much. Yeah, you go to somewhere like Cambridge and they're having a lovely time, but you wouldn't guess it. It's kind of like it's a love or sort of straight face. Just a heads up for when you go on tour. <laughs> Perfect. Noted. Noted. Laura, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Honestly, this has been so fun. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by... Playwright Miriam Batty. Thank you so much for joining us, Miriam. My pleasure. Hi, Hannah. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. 
it's not quite hot. I'm waiting for it to just become unbearably hot in my house. But apart from that, I'm good. I'm in the South Bank Centre and for such a big airy building, I'm quite warm. There's lots of marble looking stuff behind you. Perhaps you could just press yourself against that like my cats have been doing. It is quite cold. Your latest play, Strategic Love Play, it's been up at Edinburgh. You're now currently at the Soho Theatre and it's going on a national tour until the 21st of October. I found a review in The Guardian that described it as a comedic tour de force. You have to be pleased with that, right? Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Always nice to know that your jokes have landed a little bit. And also, it's like sort of funny when you write something... Because I definitely wanted it to be funny. That was like intentionally like I was working, I was sort of sweating bullets trying to make sure it was funny. But you kind of also want the joy of writing like a play or a drama is that if it's funny, it's just like a side. It's just like just part of it. You know, yeah. it's also, you know, a play, a drama. But um, I was quite pleased that people have acknowledged that it's funny because I've worked really hard on that. <laughs> and also the whole the exercise, I was I really was trying to kind of really intentionally trying to like bring the audience along with 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 the show in a way that I don't always do as a playwright like sometimes I'm like oh no I'm I'm going to ignore the audience a little bit and just like try and be I'm going to be quite selfish and just like write what I think is interesting and try and make that really strong and then hopefully it'll be legible in some way but I really tried with this one to like make it I wanted to make it like a good night out type of thing I really wanted it to feel yeah I just really wanted to reach your hand out to the audience and bring them along so I'm glad that people have recognized and enjoyed that aspect that it's funny well, talking of a good night out, it's about a first day, which for some people is a good night yes. out and for some people quite commonly isn't. Anyone who thinks that like first dates are kind of trivial or dates in general are trivial is quite mad. I just think it contains all of life. Mm. I think they're extraordinarily stressful and strange and slightly false in a way that I think is fascinating. And I'm always very interested in any kind of performance in real life. I'm just like fascinated in that. And I find that 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 kind of it's like job interview for like a lifelong partner fascinating i've written that down it's the worst job, job interview on earth yeah it is it absolutely is and the idea that there is some like value system that you might mm. you or like value judgment that you may be failing at any one moment that like a person may be ticking or crossing off things in their heads as you just exist in front of them mm. and i thought that was really it's really interesting and really sad and i think i i've been on many dates uh i've i've engaged very willfully in this this you know new <laughs> world of um fucking apps and presenting yourself kind of palatably online and and then meeting people and and i i found i found it very i started to find it very troubling that the idea that you've um we've if i can say that we've kind of made it easier for ourselves to date like at the apps have been very successful because they've sold it they've sold a social problem they've mm. sold a, a like a pain it's very it's very scary to be rejected it's very scary to put yourself out there and so you know i the apps have been very successful and everybody loves them because they made you able to be more relaxed and ambivalent when you go into a date about the other person they're not really real and it's absolutely fine if you just end it because it didn't cost you anything to get there in the first place it cost you absolutely very little and so i was slightly troubled by that because that doesn't really make sense because it's so painful to be rejected even if it costs you nothing to get there to be rejected it's still very painful and you're still just two people in a room with no guidance I was continually troubled by what the apps have like done to us but then also I just wanted to write about dating and about how how expectations smash into sad 
reality. Mm. And that's where the play was born. Can I ask? I don't know how old you are, uh, Miriam. Did you? Did you? I'm date, 31. Did you date pre-app? Not really, to be honest. I mean, a little, yeah, but I wasn't. Not in a kind of. But that was the thing. I there was no. I, the idea of going on a date didn't exist in my see, life. Yeah, exactly apps. that. I mean, I don't you know? think I've ever been on a date. If we're talking about what this right. thing is that that that's happening yes. here, that's not how I work. In as much as I'm not really looking for a partner, and therefore. It feels fraudulent to go on a first date in the yes. sense of that's what they're looking for. So I yeah. tend to meet people in the old fashioned way that other people met people through other people or, you know, yeah. you just meet them at events or things like that. Because the questions you get asked, even I think this is the thing that terrifies me most about dates is even the most inane question. I don't have a simple answer to you don't get to be 50. Yeah. And even the question, how are you or how was your day? Yeah. What's my relationship like with my parents? I wouldn't touch that with a barge pole in front of someone I'd only just met. It's it's really stressful, really stressful, I think, in the sense that yeah. what seems like simple questions are really hard. Unless, of course, and this is what the other sort of half of your proposition with the play is, unless, of course, you choose to go in and just treat this as one night you're going to spend with someone and never see them again, in which case yeah. you can just offload an immense amount of stuff on them. Yeah. And walk away. Dating now, it's a, it's a sort of an activity. You know, it's an activity to sort of go. I mean, I, I can't tell you the amount of times I have myself and other people have gone, oh, I'm just dating because I'm just trying to, like, build up my confidence. Mm. Or I'm just trying to get back in, get back out there. As yeah. a, Really, the endeavour is the... The endeavour is the act of doing it, to have done it, to know that you're doing it, to know that you're putting yourself out there. It's not really about the other person at all. It's quite extraordinary that you're like having these little pockets of time with these individuals and there's all this potential but also it doesn't matter at all it's a very strange it's quite an amazing um phenomenon that that sort of genuinely changed the world like the the kind of um the way that that what was one's personal ads became so widespread mm. no I, I mean I, I don't think I ever went on a date until I joined like tinder I think years ago it is quite funny i think i found the whole thing kind of like giggle inducingly bizarre <laughs> you're sort of just trying to be like you're like what the fuck are we doing like even like the conversation is so contrived the performance of self is so embarrassing yeah that's even before you've even started thinking about the other person and the fact that they have like feelings and that also you're just piling the experience they're having with you is just piling on top of all their other experiences with other people that they've sat across from or dated you yeah. know every time I've dated the bloke he's just you know at the end whenever it, it inevitably crashes and burns it just sifts away into all into this big pile of blokes you know that, that just like <laughs> exist seemingly to just like scream at me from the past and make me feel terrible about myself I don't know it's just so funny and also just the idea that you could like turn on a tap and a load of like people will will flow out ready yeah. to date you is extraordinarily stupid and like pointless i don't think that like we're really built as individuals to date loads of people i think it's just like too i think it's too much activity for a little heart to bear really. yeah and i think i don't know it's just it's just such an amazing phenomenon i honestly i i, I always thought like this is one play but i was always like oh, i'm gonna write strategic love two and strategic love three because there's just so many more things i haven't said i haven't packed into the hour yeah absolutely this is set in one over one night your play virgins was set over one night and also mm -hmm. you adapted 
little scratch into a play, didn't you? And that set over a really compressed time frame, as much as yeah. I remember. What's the appeal in sort of the claustrophobia of just a really, really small snapshot of life? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I actually don't know. It's, Little Scratch was, you know, something that Rebecca wrote and I, and I, you know, I just arranged that. That was like really her kind of her work, which, you know, um, all credit to her for that one. But yeah, with like the virgins and, and strategic love play. Well, definitely with strategic love play, it was just the challenge of keeping it them together in one space and not letting them get out of it, not letting them. Not let and not actually shying away from the moments where the conversation dips and it shifts uncomfortably from one subject to another and it doesn't quite work and 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 I kind of didn't want to pretty it up. I didn't want to pretty up the um the fact that when you're with them, you're just with them. You're just with that person and it is just one night. And that was just like it just started off as a bit of a challenge. And I often thought, no, should I cut into it? Should I cut into it? I, do I want to cut away? And I was like, no, no, no. I think that because often. And the form comes with the content, like when you when you've got a play, and and I just thought that it was necessary that it was that it was just that space. But yeah, couldn't press time frames. I've no idea. I've always loved like films that are like one wild night, you know, or, like, oh, yeah, me too. yeah, before sunrise, or you know, like um, one fine day, that George Clooney film. You know, I love those ones where you just kind of feel like you're with this these two people, and it's they'll be forever changed by the encounter. And I think I was just like excited about keeping them really close and keeping that always close to that that first moment of encounter between them you've been doing some writing for tv as well as play yeah you've done some writing on succession obviously succession is amazing it lives forever in the sense that if i want to watch it i can just go and watch it now yeah whereas plays live in a very different sense i mean obviously they live in hard copies because your plays are published but also they're they're only on when they're on so i wonder yeah how how it feels different i mean no not at all because i love my favorite part of the play I love that I've got a little play text. I have a little book. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Like I've I've met a lot of screenwriters who just write exclusively for TV and film and they just go, God, you get to have a book? That's right, so cool. Yeah. Like to get to have a book is amazing. I mean, it's interesting actually, Succession has actually been, they've actually published the scripts. Yes, I saw that recently. Three, yeah. Which is quite an interesting, which is very rare. But I think it's just because it's such, a, it's a great piece of writing. That's so much of it is such a great piece of writing. So that's, but it's really rare that, that that's been done. And I think, I actually love that I get the book and the book can go all over the world and people can read it. I think that's just amazing to me because also that's truly like me to that, to the reader. And I've always, always first and foremost, and I always give this advice if I ever teach playwriting, I'm always like, make it a beautiful experience to read, like really make it beautiful and um, compelling to read. Make sure it looks gorgeous on the page. Make sure it, it swings along in a exciting way. Like never, ever just think of it. I I, I can't ever just think of a play as something that will be performed. I like to think of it as somewhat completed in a text form before it's even put on. But I must admit, like, the liveness of it, I don't know, it just makes it more... I always think it's so stressful that you, you take someone's evening. Like, they have to come. They yeah. have to, like, travel over. They have to pay. They have to get a drink. They have to sit down. They have to dr- They have to be fully dressed. You know, they have to be there. You take their, you take their whole evening. And I just think that's extraordinary. Whereas with TV, the pressure isn't so much on because... TV can just swing along at any time. You can mm. put it on. You don't even have to be looking. You can be looking at your phone the whole time. You can be doing whatever you want. Yeah. And I, I just think like theatre is just, just on the whole, a far more intense experience as a mm. creator. They are there and they are they are trapped there. And it's such a different art form. And when people kind of conflate the two, I'm always like baffled by it. Yeah. But I must admit, I don't, I don't want, I don't think I ever want my plays to be filmed or available in any other way. 
It's funny you say that because I think there's like an element of, of, of going to the theatre. I absolutely agree with you that theatre is wonderful, that you, you, you have no control. I, I can remember once going to see a particularly excellent version of The Woman in Black and it was absolutely terrifying and there were loads of school kids in there and they were losing their mind. And I actually got to the point where I thought, this is all too stressful for me. I might have to leave. But then I thought, if I leave, it's still going to be continuing. And it really weirded me out because at home, I would just turn something off and it would be yeah. done. But the knowledge that this, this horror would still happen, whether I was there or not, I found I found really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Tell me what it was like on Succession, because there's a lot of talent in that writer's room. I've, I've spoken to uh, Georgia Pritchett before and she, oh God, we love yeah. her. Oh my god, the best! Oh my god, my one of my heroes. Uh, I'm thrilled to sit next to her and like split a twix with her every so often. <laughs> but I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous. There's no question. It was four months. I think. I think one of the greatest challenges of my career, genuinely, mm. just just every day trying to match the energy and, and intelligence and of, of the people in that room is amazing. I would like it made me. I've learned so much. I'm completely different creator from it and actually as much as i don't think tv and theater i think they're they're, they're sort of sisters but they're not really closely aligned i do feel like jesse armstrong's willingness to kind of continually turn the story inside out and challenge and push us further and further to be better and to to demand more from the characters and to demand more of ourselves and to make it more realistic more entertaining more unexpected like everything is just like stress testing everything has made me more able to throw away so much good material when like when I wrote strategic love play I just rewrote it I would just like rewrite it again from the ground up and I, I think like I used to be quite I used to hang on if I was like oh that's that's a really good little run of a run of lines mm. now if I lose them then the play falls apart oh and now I'm kind of like able to be like it's great but we lose it it's great but I have to lose it because it's not serving like the ultimate goal of the play and I just was like wow I don't think I would ever be able to do that if it didn't have that kind of like quite amazing boot camp of an experience yeah. but yeah it, was, yeah it was glorious and I was just I mean I just popped along for season four I have I can take no credit for anything that went before <laughs> it and I just was I was completely thrilled and dazzled and felt like I'd won a competition the whole time and it was thrilling but um it also was just funny because I I remember the first few days you know they started talking about like Roman and Logan and like and I was like kind of couldn't I had to stop myself like giggling and gasping because it was just so funny the <laughs> yeah. idea that they weren't just real people like they weren't just like they were just like completely created and I yeah. just was like amazed that I was part of I was able to sort of say what if Roman did this you know <laughs> it was just amazing it really was it was really great and if anyone ever asked me like how was it I'm just like it was extraordinary it was absolutely extraordinary yeah. it was as extraordinary as you know, being asked to work on your favourite show and, and pl plunge into that world was just gorgeous. And I'm eternally grateful to the people in that room. I was on board quite early with Succession and I was like saying to everyone, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. And it took a while, but by the time you join, it's it's huge at that point there, isn't it? At the end yeah. of season three, everybody is watching it. I just think it has a real knack to do something to me that not a lot of other telly does, like really uh, there have been periods where I've just you know literally gasped or that yeah. when even thinking about it 
I can feel like my insides curling up when Kendall does that god awful rap. Uh, well, it's not awful. It's sort of okay, but that's what makes it awful. You know, it's got production <laughs> values and all of that. It's just it just shouldn't be happening. I had to leave the room. I couldn't bear to be in a room where yeah. that was happening and that actually weirdly feels... <laughs> but it feels... was still going on, Hannah. It was still it was going exactly on. exactly that. Exactly and there's nothing that. you can do about it, Hannah. It's still no. going on. And it happened. It happened. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, it feels like <laughs> theatre. Yeah, it definitely does. What do, you, what do you think the magic of it is? What do you think? Why do you think Succession caught the public imagination, albeit quite slowly? As always, I think if something... It's so funny. Like, people go like, oh... I've been in a lot of writers' rooms and people go, oh, how do you, how did they do that in that? Oh, that was really good, so we should do that. Or, oh, you can't do that because that's not... We can't do that because mm. people won't like that. Or And you go, it sort of doesn't matter what you... It doesn't not matter what you do, but, like, you can do anything if you do it well. And that's, like, the thing. You can, like, tell any story. I do believe, like, if that group of people had told a story about something else, it would have been, it would have been extraordinary. Like, they just did it very well. It is fundamentally interesting, I think, the story of the Roys. But what I think they managed to do, I think they basically just worked very hard to push push themselves constantly to make everything both true and mythic and documentary, like, possible in the real world, mm. but also unexpected and dramatic like all these things at play and it was just like consistently turning over the plot but I think it Succession did that so many times and does that thing of, of making things happen where you gasp and you can't believe that they happen and then one second later they are the they are completely inevitable you were like that is the only thing that could have happened but until it happened I couldn't believe that that yeah. would happen and then it happened and I was like of course it happened that is like the, that, that's the greatest and it's like consistent moments like that that they find and I and I, I was so impressed by that and I I kind of I aspire to write things like that where you can make somebody go <gasps> and then you put the bit so rooted in what that character would do that it's completely inevitable and the only possible thing that could have happened. Yeah. I think Roman sent in that dick pic to his dad. That That's a perfect <laughs> example of that. Yeah. 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 You're like, oh, my God. And then you're like, well, of course he did, because because that of course that would fucking happen. Yeah, absolutely, and then and it's yeah. just. It, and it's just amazing, like these combinations of these huge, like dramatic notes, and then like a moment like that that kind of weirdly severs something between him and his father. You know, all these. Yeah. That's just a, a small, stupid moment. And I don't know. I, I think. Um, I don't know. I love. I love. I love the show. But also, I think that the show never really does rug pulls. You know, it never does like shock. Like. Like the shocking moments are never really like a revelation. They never keep anything from the audience, really, uh, apart from kind of maybe the end of season three. But like, it's just, everything is so, I don't know, you're just so with on the shoulder of every character when they do things that are surprising. I just think that's a masterful thing. But yeah, yeah I think that's why people like it because it doesn't feel, there's never a moment where you go, oh, that felt a bit cheap or icky. Just feels really, really thorough the whole way yeah. through. Like, feels like everything's really plumbed into every character, and so therefore, it never feels repetitive or strained at all. It's just really good. It's just really well made, really well rendered, really well um, wrought. You know. Agreed. Can I ask you what else you've got on your plate at the moment? I've got a lovely, lovely nutritional plate of lovely <laughs> things. I'm doing a film, which is great, uh, uh, adapting a short story, which is one of my favourite th things in the world. That's really fun. I'm hope I hope that'll get made. That's an exciting team on that. I'm doing I'm doing lots of other people's shows, which I love lots of TV shows, which I love to do. It's just a joy. Imagine just like sitting with someone who you really admire yeah. and trying to help them. It's just great. It's like an amazing <laughs> opportunity. 
you sort of torpedo in at a point when they've kind of got loads of the stuff ready they've got the world you know this is why i like quite like doing like second seasons of things or you know or or whatever if it's the first season they've they built the world and then you just kind of torpedo in and suddenly get to like have a dance in their little playground that they've created and it quite i just love it it's just such an energizing thing to do and also it's also the best thing about it hannah is that I'm writing, but really I'm just talking, which is just a joy. <laughs> but I'm just like, I'm like being employed as a writer, but I'm just chatting shit for hours and hours and hours. And it is just for someone like me, it's a total joy. It's just like all the best parts of like making something where you can kind of try stuff out and you're in a room with other people and you can try it out and throw it away and and and, and try and kind of be light on your feet, you know, with your work. And it's just, it's such a good training ground. But yeah, I'm doing a few of those, which is great. And I hope to do more. And then I'm, I'm oh, and I'm doing my own TV show, which is very exciting. Very, uh, a big American show, which is, which is a bit scary, but exciting. I'm currently on strike, but when the strike's over, I'll be kind of picking that up again. Yeah. So it's a quite a lot of, quite a lot of screen. And then I'm, I've got the beginnings of an idea for a new play, which doesn't come along that often anymore. I used to write plays like almost like, obsessively i would always be writing about two plays at once i've written i think i've written like 20 i think i counted it recently it was something like 28 plays wow. I've written so many plays recently i've written less and less and less and um i think it's because now i'm really like it has to be because i have these other mediums if i have a story you know the story might work in a certain medium that isn't a play yeah. whereas it used to be the plays were my only medium and now i you know no, it really has to be has to come into my head as a play. It has to be undeniably something that has to be theatrical and in a space live and like a real piece of writing. You know, a yeah. piece of writing. It's not. But I think I've got an an idea for a new one, which is very exciting. So I'm going to do that as well at some point. Excellent. And a strategic love play continues till 21st of October. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Miriam. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we back chat the umpire as we discuss all things women's sport. First of all, whoop whoop, I made a correct sporting prediction. Doesn't happen very often, but boy, when it does. Congratulations then to Coco Goff, who beat Arena Sabalenka on Saturday to be crowned the winner of this year's US Open. After dropping the first set 2-6, the 19-year-old came back all guns blazing to win the next two and beat Sabalenka in the end 2-6, 6-3, 6-2. A stunning performance and all power to her, breaking through in just a few short years to take her first Grand Slam title. Lovely stuff. Let's have a look at some less lovely stuff because this is the sports section after all. And that news is that umpires were paid three times more to officiate in the men's 100 matches this summer than the women's. According to The Guardian, umpires in the women's 100 were paid a match fee of £300 in the group stages and £1,000 for the women's final. Meanwhile, for the men's fixtures, which run alongside the women's in this tournament, their group fixture match fees were £1,000 with 2,500 paid for the final. Now, this offers a bit of an unwelcome contrast to last week's news that the England and Wales Cricket Board would pay England's men's and women's cricketers the same match fees because who do you think this policy disproportionately impacts? Hmm. 
Of course, it's women. Women can be umpires in the men's game, but it is much rarer than in the women's game. There was just one woman umpire in this year's 100 on the men's side and seven on the women's side. Let's head over to football now and some bad news if you're an Arsenal fan, isn't it always? Unlucky to Arsenal women who were knocked out of the Champions League at the weekend in a shock defeat by Paris FC. In their second qualifying tie, they lost 4-2 on penalties after finishing 3-3 after extra time. To add insult to injury, it was Alessia Russo, one of the club's big summer signings, who missed one of the penalties. A real stinker for the Gooners, especially when you consider they made it as far as the semi-finals last year. Staying with football for a minute, we talked about it in Sexism of the Week and I've talked about it for weeks on end. So I am pleased to say, and now I really hope we never have to talk about this again, although, you know, in case you somehow missed it, Luis Rubiales has now resigned. And in what I can only call a shockingly unconvincing attempt to prove what a sound laddie is, he made the announcement on... Drumroll, please. Piers Morgan's talk TV show, Uncensored. What a way to go. And from a welcome departure to an unwelcome one, it was also announced last week that Barbara Slater, the director of BBC Sport, will retire from the BBC next spring. Slater is the first ever female director of BBC Sport, taking up the position in 2009. She's been with the BBC for a massive 40 years and is herself a former Olympic gymnast. She's completely changed the game in terms of the profile and coverage of women's sport and has overseen huge events such as the London 2012 Olympics. She's done a hell of a job in a world still undeniably dominated by men and I think it will be a huge loss to women's sports to see her go. But we hope someone equally committed to its promotion will step in to fill her shoes. We wish her all the best. That's all for me this week and I will be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film in which people from foreign countries do funny stuff did we watch this week? This week, we watched much-lauded 2003 holiday romance Lost in Translation, penned and directed by Sofia Coppola and starring Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. Okay, let's get something key out of the way, early doors. Bill Murray is somewhere around six foot one, six foot two, yeah? So he is pretty tall, coming in a good five or six inches taller than your average Japanese man. Although not the whopper this film seems to suggest. Also, you probably thought I was going to talk about the whopper of an age gap between our leading man, Murray, who was 52 when Lost in Translation was made, and leading woman, Johansson, who actually I can barely call a leading woman given she was Uh. just 17 at the time. Was she 17? Yeah. I thought she was 19. Shit. Uh, she was 19 when it came out. Right, okay. And she's supposed to be, I don't know, what? 22. Tw- 22, in it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, that is a whopping 34 years between the two. And while Hollywood is obviously no stranger to age gaps, I've done a bit of research, and this is one of the most whoppingest. Pips to the top spot by 39 years between Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones in Entrapment and 41 years between Tom Skerritt and Drew Barrymore in Poison Ivy, and Barrymore was also just 17 at the time. Now, that age gap is, of course, part of what Lost in Translation is all about. 
as Coppola examines a quarter-life and midlife crisis coming together against the backdrop of cultural displacement. These two are lost and lonely in all sorts of ways. And people really, really wanted to watch Two Lost and Lonely People. Lost in Translation was a major critical and commercial success. It made almost $120 million on a $4 million budget. I'm not very good at percentages, but that is a lot of percentage. It bagged Coppola the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay and had reviewers falling over themselves with compliments for Murray, for Johansson and for Coppola. There were worries that releasing an indie movie in September meant it would be forgotten by award season, but uh, no need for the fear there, as not only did it pick up a host of awards, Lost in Translation was listed as Best Film of 2003 by no fewer than 235 critics. Those critics were not Japanese. (laughs) Absolutely not. Lost in Translation didn't um, translate very well in Japan and received some charges of racial stereotyping in its depiction of the country and its people. Indeed, local distributors were reported to be concerned about how it would be received there, and fair to say, reviewers weren't as blown away as their Western counterparts. But we've already got to that, and we will get to it again later, I am sure. Now, I saw this at the cinema when it came out, and I really, really wanted to love it, not least because I adore Bill Murray. I thought it looked utterly beautiful, but it left me pretty cold. And also feeling a bit stupid, like I'd missed something because everyone else loved it so hard. Have you two seen it before? Yes. Yes. Okay. And I saw it at the cinema, largely because it came with such a... You know, and it was directed by a woman. So, you know, I wasn't so nervous about the age gap as perhaps I might have been had it been directed by a man who was in his mid-50s. I thought it was good, as in I thought that, you know, it looks lovely. If you take aside the sort of cultural stereotypes, Japan looks kind of beautiful. So I thought it was good, but I couldn't really understand what much of the fuss was. There are a couple of scenes that are absolutely charming, really, really charming. Don't really like either of them, which doesn't help matters, but this is a conversation for later, I suppose. Yes, please. I've seen it, I think, once. I was at uni at the time. I'm pretty sure I didn't see it at the cinema. I think I must have gotten... We must have rented it or something. I would have been 20, probably, or 21 when I saw this. I think I remember enjoying it and thinking it was good. And I feel like at that sort of point in my life, I probably would have been a bit like, mm, yeah, yeah, mm, this is great, because that's the kind of shit you do when you're at uni. I have to say, if that is indeed how I felt. I'm not sure I feel the same now, but let's get into that. Okay. Pre uh, discussing how I feel about this today, a little bit of plot, and I'm going to keep this short because, well, there's, there's not very much there, is there? <laughs> Two unsatisfied and estranged people meet in Tokyo. Married middle aged man Bob Harris is a fading movie star bringing in some easy money by advertising Japanese whiskey. Recent Yale graduate Charlotte doesn't have a surname or a sense of purpose. But she does have some see-through knickers and a photographer husband who works a lot. Both jet-lagged and insomniac, Bob and Charlotte meet and find kinship with one another as two people adrift, alone and big fans of alcohol. They connect, they party, they hang out, they talk about life. They're pals and they're more than pals. Not solely platonic, not precisely romantic. Charlotte is jealous when Bob shags a lounge singer, but they make up, drink a bit more and say goodbye. The first goodbye in the hotel lobby is awkward. The second, where Bob, on his way to the airport, spots Charlotte on a busy street, makes his taxi driver stop and goes to her, 
is more enigmatic, more satisfactory, and ends with Bob whispering something into Charlotte's ear before the two share a kiss. Right, I read time and time again that the relationship between Bob and Charlotte never turns romantic. So I guess that smooch at the end is what these people do with their mothers. Yeah. And I wondered, what did you make of it? It's absolutely romantic. I mean, A, why would she be jealous of the other woman if it wasn't romantic? And secondly, she flirts with him. She's quite sexualized in her early conversations with him. Now, that might be just how you start conversations. Some people are just quite flirty, naturally. But given that almost everybody else she meets, she seems to hate. Like, there's something that... Or, or certainly judge. Yeah, there's definitely something. Yeah. And then that bit at the end is, yeah, I don't kiss people like that as a rule. I thought it was interesting because I don't think that there's anything particularly romantic about it until the end. I thought they could have left it ambiguous. I'd wondered why they bothered with the kiss at the end because I felt it was better left a bit ambiguous because he, there's a bit where he says to her, I can't remember what the exact line is, but he basically says, oh, isn't there someone else who could be, like, paying you attention? Love issue with attention. Yeah. yeah. I don't think she fancies him. I think she is lonely and she wants attention from him. I don't think that she actually wants to be in, like, a romantic relationship with him. I think she wants attention. Do you think he fancies her? Yeah, I think he fancies her because he's like a 52-year-old man. She's like a very attractive young woman. So, yeah, I think he does fancy her. But I do think it's more complicated than that because I think he probably knows she just wants attention and he probably knows there's no fool like an old fool. And actually, going back to the fact that, like you said, I didn't realise she was that young. I thought she probably, I thought, well, she probably 18 when she made it. But given the fact that she's... 17 and Mm. you know maybe that in itself restricted their ability to take it any further because 52 year old man cops off with 17 year old girl on camera is not a good look yeah no one told that to the makers of poison ivy did they (laughs) hannah did they don't watch that film just trust me on that one what do you think he whispers to her at the end slash do you care i'm not sure i care (laughs) but i did no i did i when i was watching it i did think hmm i wonder what he says because that in that moment he looks a bit like like I I don't like it basically whatever he says to her I don't like it I don't think I think he says buy shares in Japanese whiskey because it's about to take the world by storm yeah that would be uh, a nice reader and it could be what he said no one knows what Bill Murray whispered no, to Scarlett Johansson really apart care. from Bill Murray Scarlett Johansson and Sophia Coppola who decided not to add in the audio afterwards and just to leave it very ambiguous there's been many guesses because the internet and most of them revolve around him saying like you know just because i'm leaving doesn't mean this is over or or, like doesn't mean that you know there's not a future for us some people think he says that he loves her yeah no one knows and yeah i also don't really care because like what are viewers supposed to want that relationship Mm. to be over (laughs) well we get what we want then don't we hannah (laughs) what do we do we? Is he saying, I'll see you at this cafe in Los Angeles when I get back? Because I didn't read the relationship as romantic. I think you can look at it as in, like, obviously, and I think you're probably supposed to look at it as in, they're very different people who are both very lonely and they serve a purpose to each other at that time and they help each other out and fundamentally, like, that's a good thing. Right? Well, the, the weird thing for me is, I can't, I mean, they both 
like morbidly depressed it appears to be at the start. Yeah. Even though I am slightly surprised why she feels like that before anybody like writes in. I appreciate that you can be young, beautiful, married to a successful man and still be unhappy, obviously. But she's just finished a degree. She's about to start her life. And she just seems to be not, I would describe as it doesn't, it doesn't come across as depressed. It doesn't even come across as tired or sleep deprived. To me, it just comes across as just miserable. She just appears to be grumpy. She dislikes everyone. She's quite judgmental. And all these things most people are when they're like in their, in their early 20s or a lot of people are in their early 20s. And he's, you know, in a slump that's slightly more believable that he's in some sort of like midlife crisis type slump, etc., etc. He's not very happy with his career. I don't really get what they get out of their relationship. They don't seem to have a big moment together. They don't seem to have any conversations that actually really mean anything. There doesn't seem to be any depth to that relationship. So I don't understand what it can be if it's not about some sort of sexual threesome because they don't appear to be salvage any of each other's life problems. No. They just go out and get shit-faced. I think that she's lonely. I think she's married to someone who doesn't appear to be particularly interested in her and he's off out doing whatever and maybe she's, I don't know, I kind of get a vibe from her that maybe she's thinking that this isn't the best decision she's made and, and, and it's not like great for her sort of hanging around waiting for him while he's off doing whatever. And but she's in Japan. Just go off and see shit. Yeah, just but I don't... Just go off and, and, and take this opportunity to be staying in an amazing hotel in yeah, an amazing but I think country. for some people, they would want someone to do that with whatever. I don't know. Anyway, that, that's my reading of, of what she's upset about. Like, she's lonely. They're just there. They just exist at the same time and they understand the other one's loneliness. And I think that's what they get out of it. I don't think they have, like a profound connection or anything like that they're just there they serve a purpose to each other in that moment but it's important she says she's stuck she says to bob i'm stuck and he is also stuck so they sort of talk about that and i think jen's correct in that they're they're bored and they're lonely and that's why they've come together and i think it's like human nature things where we look for profundity even Mm. when it isn't there and while for me that kind of encapsulates the whole film, which isn't a, a very positive thing to say mm. about it, I do think that's what we're supposed to take from them. Mm. But I also agree with Hannah. I think there was a sexual on there. She absolutely flirts with him. You know, they're watching each other all the time. And while there's not much depth in the way they talk to each other, they absolutely keep their eyes on each other when they're in scenes together, even when they're surrounded by other people. If they're apart from each other, they always find their way back to each other. I am actually going to channel my inner Hannah Delaney here and point out it could not be made now and couldn't have been made even five years later when smartphones started to become ubiquitous. Because I am pretty sure, and this again sort of states that their relationship, whatever it is, isn't very deep. I'm pretty sure that Charlotte with an iPhone would not have been hanging out with old Bob. (laughs) Yeah, agreed. Agreed. There's been lots of conversation sort of online about over the years about is this film autobiographical, semi-autobiographical, that sort of thing. Yeah. Is she Scarlett Johansson? Is Spike Jones? you know, is he Giovanni Ribisi? Is, is this something that happened? And I think it must be because I don't know, without that personal investment from her, I don't know why she thinks this would be really interesting to anybody else. I just don't think it's that interesting. I think it's perfectly possible that there is a story about a young woman who 
who bonds on some level with an with an older man, you know, I, and it not be sexual. But I don't think this film is it, to be honest. When he delivers her to her bedroom when she's fallen asleep, it's actually it's it's very paternal the mm. way he does it until he's about to leave, and he does that moment's hesitation, which speaks volumes, doesn't it? He doesn't say anything; just a, like like little moments hesitation, and I was massively reminded. Of Venkman in Ghostbusters kissing Dana mm, when she's possessed. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's not right. No, no, you yeah. can't get consent. Absolutely not. And he doesn't do anything, but you can see that there's just that moment's hesitation. Let's carry on talking about the women, because obviously Bob doesn't have sex with Charlotte. Bob has sex with the lounge singer who is so badly sketched out. She's mm. basically less than 2D. You know, you get a female director around this time and you, you kind of expect something that might be feminist and in fact I think it's almost exactly the opposite I think it's really judgmental of all other women all other women in this are fucking dicks now I mean I actually think that that she's a fucking dick personally but all of the other women you know the character played by Anna Faris she's just made to be ridiculous and okay if it was a, a different sort of comedy maybe if it was a film that didn't take itself so earnestly then maybe you could have thought that she was being played for laugh. But the film is mean to her. It's mean to that singer. Charlie has a couple of female friends who never utter a single word. In fact, the closest thing to women having a personality in this film is my favourite scene, and that's when he's in the hospital talking to that man, and he can't understand the man, and the two women behind are pissing themselves laughing. That's the closest thing any woman shows to having a personality in this film. You're right. The Anna Faris character is totally painted as being inane, even yeah. though she's clearly pretty successful. Yeah. But everything we see of her, I think, is meant to echo how Charlotte sees yes, us. And that's I think what that I adds think. into the idea that maybe it's autobiographical for Sophia Coppola. Yeah. I think the same with the lounge singer as well. I think that we are supposed to see them through the eyes of Charlotte and they are sort of her ops, as the kids say, opposition. I think that's exactly why they're painted in that way. I think that's how we're supposed to see them. And I think actually, like, Charlotte is probably the main one. Yes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I actually think that idea that we're looking at all of this through either Bob or Charlotte's eyes feeds really neatly into talking about that racial stereotyping oh criticism levelled at Lost in Translation. So I wondered what you thought about it. I watched it with subtitles and it really, really did ram home how many... Don't they pronounce their R's funny jokes there are in this? I thought they were appalling. It's not good. I mean, I'm not Japanese, so I'm not in a position to uh, to speak for them. But I would say for watching it, it's not good. I've never been to Japan. I don't know much about Japanese culture, to be perfectly honest. But it did seem very much like, whoa, aren't the Japanese crazy? Yeah. Like, it was very much a lot of that. I can tell you what Sophia Coppola had to say about that. She said... I think if everything's based on truth, you can make fun, have a little laugh, but also be respectful of a culture. I just love Tokyo and I'm not mean-spirited. Now, I don't know anyone who would claim to not be mean-spirited, unless in fact they were quite mean-spirited, which again feeds into how Charlotte is, I think. And I think you can be respectful and have a giggle, but the thing that pushes it over the edge for me, that pushes it from, actually, it's Bob and Charlotte who are others... And so they're seeing it as wacky and zany because they're not used to it and we're seeing everything through their eyes is the fun that they make of how the Japanese people pronounce 
L's and R's, mm. and that's just mean. It is just absolutely mean. Everything else you could see is sort of, you could generously see as buying into this idea that they're jet lagged and sleep deprived and they're in a city that neither of them really want to be in and don't really know. And so they're eight, they're the aliens. And so everything looks alien to them. But that, I think, absolutely tips it into the other direction. I think if you went to like, I don't know, like Lagos or somewhere like that, and I, I, I don't think you'd get away with it with a different culture. Also the statement, I love this. And I'm not mean-spirited. I mean, it's pretty much most people's defence for racism, isn't it? Yes. What are you talking about? I love absolutely. black people. I'm not horrible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm just, you know, just saying what she said. I'm not saying she's right. No, well, quite. No, it, it's a comedy. And as much as I think it's become clear to the listeners that n- none of us are massive fans of this film at all, it did make me laugh out loud a few times. Mainly Bill Murray, particularly Bill Murray fighting with the CrossFit. That absolutely made me howl. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, but I wondered if you laughed and if so, uh, which moments made you chuckle? Yeah, the CrossFit is funny. Um, that, I mean, that well, he just can't it. get off it. And then the next day, he's just got a wicked limp when he goes to that to that meeting. Yeah. yeah. Not especially, I have to say. No. I think the bit where he's filming the advert and... Him, not any of the stuff that's going on around him, not the directors or anything like that, but him when he's filming the advert, I think he delivers that in in quite a humorous way. It's quite funny. And I just, I think Bill Murray's very charming as an actor, isn't he? And he is very funny. (laughs) But for me, this film was, and I think it's probably sort of supposed to a little bit, but it is so dull. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And it's not even long. And it, I was no, bored. and it feels long. And I think maybe maybe it is supposed to feel long because maybe it is supposed to feel like that kind of emptiness, stretching kind of lonely, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I think maybe it is supposed to feel like that, but fucking hell does it. Like, to me, that's I'm not getting a lot out of that. Yeah. I think it's a story in the wrong format. I think it would make a good novel to be honest, because you would spend more time in their heads. and you, There's just way too much time of her just looking out of a window with an inscrutable face. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not entirely sure what I'm supposed to be thinking that she's feeling right now. Whereas if you were actually in her head, it might add some depth to her as a character. When it came out and I felt cold, I, I did feel like, am I missing something? Is there something missing in me? But watching it again and feeling exactly the same 20 years on, I feel it's a bit of an Emperor's New Clothes of a mm. film because so mm. many people claim to love it and claim it's a masterpiece and see it as this like insightful look into the human mind and heart. Mm. And I'm just like, is it? No, no. Like I said, I think I thought it was profound when I was 21, but watching it now, I, I did not feel that way. I just I just was willing it to end. <laughs> Okay, lost in translation, rated or dated? <laughs> I will say one really positive thing about it, and that is that those sunglasses that Giovanni Rabisi wears are fucking chef's kiss. Almost <laughs> enough for me to say rated, but of course, oh, wow. the 99% of the rest of it is very, very much not rated and also dated. I don't think it's particularly dated, but I, I, I don't rate it. So by default... That's interesting because I don't think this film would pass muster now. Yeah, I agree. I think it wouldn't be made because of the age gap. I think Hollywood definitely has an eye on that now. And I think it's also dated because if she had a smartphone and some apps, 
there's no way she would be hanging out with old saggy scrope bob she maybe yeah she'd just be on instagram wouldn't she She'd be chatting on Instagram how unhappy she was in Tokyo and having a million <laughs> followers. That's yeah. what would be happening. Yeah. What are you two watching next week? Yeah, you're not here, so uh, so we're cranking out a bit of uh, a bit of Tommy Lee Jones. This is so rude. It's so unusual because normally what happens when you're not here is Jen and I perv on Daniel Day Lewis in your absence. Uh, <laughs> do you know what? There was an opportunity for that recently, and I passed it up, and I can't <laughs> believe it. Yeah, we are going to watch. Oh, I don't know. Is it 1988? It might be 1983. I think it's 1988. Anyway, it's definitely having an anniversary. The Fugitive. Yeah, it's 1993, isn't it? The Fugitive. I mean, yeah. I'll just say all the dates and, Nikki, you edit one that's accurate, even if it's in Jen's voice. 1993. Standard issue for all women.